All right, church. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. When you turn to your neighbor, tell him, let us rejoice. It's a good day. Last week, I started a sermon series on wisdom with work. Last week's sermon was called A Biblical Theology uh, of Work. Uh, was that the title? It was A Biblical Theology of Work, right? All right, just want to make sure. Uh, today, I'm going to continue with part two of this sermon series on wisdom uh, with work. Now, last week, I talked about how many Christians, they believe that there are two types of calling in life, sacred and secular. But I pointed out how many heroes of faith in the Bible weren't called to full-time ministry, but to what we would today call secular professions. They were shepherds, prime ministers, uh, and other secular jobs and professions. Even Jesus, the Son of God, when he was sent onto the earth, God the Father had Jesus spend the majority of his adult years as a blue-collared carpenter. There is no such thing as a sacred or secular call. That's what I said last week. Every call that comes from God is sacred. Amen? So, And I also talked about last week how the Bible... Uh, is all about work. It's not a book all about leisure and vacation. It is all about work. It is a book written by workers, about workers, for workers. And we looked at Genesis, how in the book of Genesis, God himself is seen as a worker who does work and values work. And after he created man, God put a mandate upon man to take dominion over the earth and subdue it. And you cannot take dominion over the earth and build bridges and cities and airports without work. Even the fourth of the Ten Commandments, to keep the Sabbath, isn't just about rest. But you see that there's a presumption that if you're going to walk into the Sabbath rest, you have to have done a five or six day work week. It's all about work. Uh, in your community groups this week, I gave you a set of discussion questions. And in there, I provided a link to the Strength Finders test. Any of you this past week, you took that test for the first time. You have to pay about 20 bucks to take it. Anyone take it for the first time? Wow, so one person really, really valued my message enough <laughs> to take that test. Uh, I would encourage you... Uh, to take that test if you've never taken it before. Uh, because it is going to help you identify strengths that maybe you've taken for granted or you're not even fully aware of. You know, if God has created the bird to have wings and to fly, probably a good idea for that bird to learn how to fly eventually. If he's created you to be a dolphin to swim, probably a good idea well, I mean, they're born in water. I guess they always know how to swim. <laughs> uh, cheetah, you know, learn how to run. You know, anyway, God's created you a very specific way, just as he created the animals. He's created them with a very specific design. He has a specific design for your life, for the work that he wants you to do while you're on this earth. 
And the only way that you can experience flow in your workplace is if you are leveraging your strengths for the work that you do. Amen? I would really encourage you guys to take the Strength Finders test. Um, my top five strengths are uh, command. <laughs> it was my number one. What can I say, right? Uh, activator. Uh, I also have adaptability. So I, I, I don't have problems with change. I know some of you are deathly afraid of change. For me, you know, it's all like I have to keep myself from changing things too much. Responsibility, which means whenever God gives me something or I give someone else something, I really have a high expectation that you're going to be responsible with it. And I am also very hard on myself to be responsible with the things God's given me. Uh, although I'll admit that I'm not perfect and there are things that I've uh, uh, announced but did not follow through on. Okay? And I, I have uh, become keenly aware of that this past week. Uh, one of our leaders uh, uh, shared with me uh, his or her concerns about that matter. And it was a revelation to me that, you know, I'm not perfect in that area. And I need to definitely bring closure to things that I don't follow through on. But for the most part, I have that strong sense of responsibility to follow through on things that I feel like God has given me. Or any kind of task that somebody entrusts to me. And I believe my fifth was... Um, significance uh that's a weird one i'm not going to explain it okay so if you guys go read the book uh you will find out that uh i'm not just an ambitious person god has designed me to do things that i expect to be significant some people will be like oh no that's just you following the ways of the world but you, you will find that there are certain people who have that strength of significance whether they do it in music or art or writing or or preaching they, they have this sense of what I, got, what I have and what I have to contribute. It, it has to grow. It has to go to other people. It ha- more people have to see my art. Like There's a sense of significance. And I always thought it was an evil thing all my life. But through the strength finders, I, I, found, I realized that you know, that's God-given. That's a God's design uh, for some people to have that kind of natural ambition. Anyway, I highly recommend you take that test. The Bible does say in Ephesians 2.10... We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. If God has designed you to be his workmanship, he's designed you very specifically. He has not mass produced 50 million Koreans. All right. He has specifically designed each and every single one of you. He has a purpose for your life, a meeting, a calling for your life. He's also prepared the good works. Not as he goes along. But the Bible says, in advance for you to do. That means that you don't get to determine what you want to do with your life. You got to find out what God has called you to do. Uh, And I talked about work is not something you do to live. Work is something you live to do. And that is the biblical mindset that we ought to have toward work. Now, when I talk about work... I talk about calling. Everybody thinks of their dream job. So they go, all right, I understand I need to have that kind of perspective. I need to have that kind of attitude. But I'll take on that attitude and faithfulness when I reach my dream job. When I have my own dance studio. (laughs) When I have my own art gallery. 
my own museum. I want to be a museum owner. You know, I have no desire for that. So God bless you to do it. You know, I want to, I want to be a, a preacher, you know, forget this intern pastor program. You know, when somebody gives me a mic and I can preach every week, I'm going to do my thing. Everyone thinks of their dream job, lawyer, law, medicine, whatever it is. And they think, I'm going to apply these attitudes that you talked about last week, Pastor Christian, when I reach my dream job. When I land at the calling that I believe God has called me to steward. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I was reading uh, in John Ortberg's book. You know, a lot of the um, materials for this sermon series is coming from John Ortberg's book, The Me I Want to Be. Excellent book. You know, if you go to, uh, pick it up, it's a, it's a great read. Uh, and in the book, he interviewed uh, an uh, Asian leader in California who uh, oversees admissions at Stanford University. And he talked about how many of these college uh, applicants... Uh, when they apply for jobs, uh, they, all they have in mind is like this dream career, this dream job. And many of these college applicants are not willing to take the steps to get to that dream job. Or the admissions advisor was saying that many of these dream jobs do not exist. And only 1% of the world actually gets that kind of dream job. Whether it's, you know... Being the founder of the next Facebook, the next social media explosion. You know, I want to be the CEO of Amazon or Google. I want to work at Google. You know, they have playgrounds and cafes in Google. I want to I work at a place like that. And they have these dream job visions and dream careers. And the admissions director was saying, many of these dream jobs are pipe dreams. And many of these young people don't even know what steps to take to get there. Um, today's message is titled, Every Assignment Has Value. Every Assignment Has Value. God has specific calling on your life. But here's the thing. You're not going to get there overnight. Or you may not even get to the place you think you're going. He might take you somewhere completely different. And so the important thing about discerning the calling of God is not to obsess yourself over the details of the calling, but obsess yourself with intimacy with the caller. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, if you keep your eyes on God, who created and designed you to be his workmanship, who knows about the good works he's, advanced, he's prepared in advance for you to do. If you keep your eyes on the Lord, he'll get you to the assignment he wants you to do. And here's the thing. There may be many assignments that lead up to the bigger assignment. And so today's message is called, Every Assignment Has Value. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. I'll read the key text together. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. I'm going to read from 22 to 24 
in the ESV. It says here, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters by way of eye service. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. I'm going to read this verse in the NIV for you. It's a little bit smoother. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. This passage ought to revolutionize our status quo perspectives Toward work. The passage here says, work with all your heart unto the Lord, not for men, not when your boss's eyes are on you. Now, I know it says here slaves and masters, right? But you know, a lot of our workplaces, isn't that what it feels like? Right? They got their whip, you know, where's my report? Where's the curriculum? You know, and you know it's like kind of modern day, uh, a little bit. Not, not really. I don't want to. Um... Now, African American uh, slavery is radically different from the slavery that existed in the Roman Empire. So it's hard to make analogies that way. I think the uh, American slavery that we we saw, well, Americans saw, and studied in our history is far worse than the slavery system that took place in the ancient Near East and in the Roman Empire. Anyway. Um, this doesn't just pertain to just slaves and masters, technically. It could be any employees and employers. Employees, when you are doing your work, don't do it just when your manager's eyes are on you. Just trying to be a people pleaser. When you do your work, do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. What is this passage saying? This, pas- this passage is saying... Every assignment for work while you're on this earth is God-given. And although your employer may not see everything you do, there is someone who is continually looking upon your attitude, your faithfulness, in every work assignment you are given. You see, if every assignment of work is given by God, that means that every assignment of work has value. And I believe that as it has value, it's also used by God to qualify you for the next assignment or to greater assignments. Uh, For example, in the Bible, you have Joseph. Uh, Joseph gets sold by his brothers into Egyptian, into slavery, and eventually ends up in Egypt. He gets sold as a butler for Potiphar's house. And while he is there, He does his work with all of his heart. How do we know? Because Potiphar had many butlers. I'm sure he was a rich guy. But he looked with favor upon Joseph. Because this guy was doing it with all of his heart. And in fact, when Joseph had an opportunity to get 
you know, a little sexual favor from Potiphar's wife, he fled that temptation. Why? Because once again, he knew that his employer was not Potiphar, because Potiphar may have never ever found out that he was sneaking around with the wife. But he knew that God was always watching him. And so he says, how can I do this evil thing and sin against God? Not sin against Potiphar. His primary concern was with the employer that's in heaven. So he believed that that assignment as butler, you know, he was supposed to be faithful. Now, here's the thing. He proves faithful to God with the butler assignment and he gets put in jail. Now, how would that make you feel? You know? Let's say you're working at a corporate office and you're an intern, you know, and you're working for this big name CEO tech company. And one day that tech company's, uh, the CEO's wife, who is like 15, 20 years younger, you know, starts coming up to your desk and saying, hey, can I see your phone? And then she punches in her number, starts cacaoing you. What you doing? You know what you're wearing? You know, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, and you do the right thing. She comes on to you one night. No one's at the office, comes on to you. And you push her away and you get the heck out of there. The next day you find out you're fired. Not only are you fired, but you find out that as you apply for other jobs, that last employer, his wife accused you of trying to rape her, accused you of trying to do sexual harassment. And so now your name is tainted. You can't find another job in another uh, business background, in any kind of business setting. How would that make you feel? Well, that's exactly what happened to Joseph. But Joseph, as a prisoner, right, like a slave master, as a prisoner, he was such a wonderful prisoner that the prison warden gave him the keys. That's ridiculous. How do you, what kind of stupid prison warden is that? Who gives the, hey, hey, prisoner, hey, you're doing such a great job. Here are the keys. Who does that? Who does that? But Joseph was such a good prisoner <laughs> that he got put in charge with all the keys. That's crazy, right? I think if anyone got it in the Bible, Joseph got it. Eventually, his faithfulness as a butler, as a prisoner, as a dream interpreter, he was so faithful in everything he did, he did it with all of his heart that eventually... God used those assignments to qualify him to be the prime minister over all of Egypt. He was the man who had the most power over this thriving civilization besides Pharaoh. He, had, he was second in command. And he didn't even worship the same God that Egyptians worshipped. Every assignment is God-given. And oftentimes, God uses every assignment to qualify you for bigger assignments. You know, um, sometimes we get jobs in life where we think that the, the work that we do is insignificant. And oftentimes we lose um, interest, we lose passion to do that job, to be faithful at that workplace. But I want to tell you today that we are the ones who make our work significant, not the other way around. In God's eyes, whatever work you're assigned, no matter how seemingly insignificant or mundane it is, God wants you to bring value to the work. 
He does not want you to derive value from the work. He wants you to bring value to the work. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's what it's all about. You see, in Christ, you have incredible value and worth. And so no matter what work assignment you're given, you can go to that work assignment and let that worth shine through. Let that value shine through. You are not insecure needing to get your value and worth from your job performance. No, you bring value to whatever assignment God gives you. See, we need to shift our, our, our mindset. We have to shift uh, our attitude, our perspective. You know, in the Bible, it mentions the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. When Isaac became of age... Abraham wanted to get Isaac a wife. So what does he do? He sends one of his servants out on a mission to go and find a wife for my son. Now, that's a pretty difficult mission right there. So this uh, helper, this uh, servant, was very nervous. So he takes time to pray to the God of Abraham. Even though he didn't know much about the God of Abraham, he prays to the God of Abraham to give him success. Now think about that. Think about the assignment that that servant had. Maybe he was um, a camel groomer. I don't know. And he's like, man, I'm good at grooming camels. I'm not no, you know, I, I, I'm not some matchmaker. Why are you sending me out to get a, find you a wife for your son? Let me take care of your camels. You know? And he might have looked down on that assignment and said, ah, let me just get some, any pretty girl. Hey, you, come, 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 come over here. You know, well, I'm, I have a rich master and, you know, you can marry his uh, son or something like that. But he took it very seriously. And it's evident by the prayer that he prays. Now, after he prays this prayer, he's with his camels. And what he prays is, Lord, I'm so tired from this journey. I'm praying for you to give me success. I pray that the next woman who comes by and offers to water my camels will be a sign on to me. That this is the woman you've chosen. So he's there exhausted with all of his, uh, well, he had 10 camels. And lo and behold, a woman starts coming up. She's a young girl, you know, looking, you know, pretty athletic, you know, but not that athletic. It's a girl. It's just a girl in the the desert. Um, And, you know, he, he, he gives his spiel. And then all of a sudden, this young girl offers to water his camels, to to give water to his camels. Now, that may not sound like a big task until you do the math, okay? And so, you know, um, camel experts, okay, (laughs) will will tell you one gallon of water in American units, one gallon equals eight pounds. Eight pounds will be like... You know, 3.8 kilos or something like that, okay? Uh, 3.8 kilos, 3.8 kilo, okay? Uh, one gallon equals eight pounds. A thirsty camel can drink up to 30 gallons of water. So each um, camel, to make sure their thirst is satisfied, you would have to haul up uh, 30 times uh, eight. What is that? 200. And 40 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. Okay. But this homie had 10 camels. Okay. So that's 
2,400 pounds of water. That's like um, 1,200 kilos, something like that, right, of, of, of water. That's a lot of water. She didn't have a team with her. And the Bible doesn't say that she used to be a wrestler. Okay. And so Rebecca, all she's doing that day is doing the task that her parents gave her. Go and fetch water for the rest of the family. And as she's out doing that, she noticed this traveler who's struggling, looks thirsty, looks a lost. And him looking so sorry and looking so, so, so tired, she offers. But as she offers, she realizes what she's getting herself into. But as she realizes she, what she's getting into herself into, she still executes that mundane task of hauling anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 gallons of water. Can you imagine how much time that took? Imagine what's going through Rebecca's mind. Why did I agree to this? I'm going to be so sore tomorrow. I don't know if Rebecca was on like a diet and was trying to lose weight or something like, and was welcoming the new exercise. I don't think so. What did I tell you? Rebecca, she had the servant's heart. And she looked at this opportunity to serve as a valuable assignment. And she did it with all of her heart. Just like it says in Colossians 3. She did it with all of her heart. Now, the thing about Rebecca is, she did what she did without knowing what was at stake. She wasn't like, you know, I have a prophetic word from the Lord that as I offer travelers to feed, uh, water their camels, my husband is going to come. I, she had no prophetic word like that. She just did what she did, not knowing what was at stake. She was just being her best at the work that she was assigned. And she was uh, also demonstrating a servant's heart to be a blessing to others. You know, you know, some people are super selfless and sacrificial, like Rebecca here. But it's amazing how such seemingly selfless people can also be capable and prone to intense jealousy and bitterness. And selfless people can fall into this kind of trap. And this happens usually when they feel that they aren't being properly affirmed or recognized for the hard work. That they're contributing. Such people reveal that when they do selfless work for others, they're not actually doing it out of a generous heart or onto the Lord. They're doing it for a wage, a wage of affirmation, encouragement. You know, if you ever see a hardworking employee not get its wages, it's not a pretty sight. You know, in China, they've been known to start riots. You know, in China, they have contractor companies, contracting companies. They hire out all these um, suburban workers, rural area workers, to work on a highway. And they say, we will pay you at the end of the year. And China has been infamous for undercutting other uh, construction companies. And at the end of the year, they just don't pay any of the workers. And uh, back 10 years ago, there were so many riots going on all over China because of unpaid employees. When an employee doesn't get the wage he's looking for, that's going to be an angry man. He might just start a riot. Well, in the same way, when selfless people, they do acts of service, but there's a string attached. 
usually when they don't get what they want on the other side of that string, there's going to be bitterness. But Rebecca, she was different. She watered all those camels because she valued her ability to work and she wanted to add value to the world around her. She was not looking for an affirmation. She didn't go, all right, now affirm me. She did that and she was just like, all right, old man, you need anything else? <laughs> I did all that for you. I mean, you know, she, she didn't ask for anything. She was simply trying to add value to the world around her. And if there was no reward for Rebecca that day, she would have been totally okay with it. Because her attitude toward work, she put inherent value on it. Her attitude towards being a servant was not with a string attached, was not, was not with an expectation of reciprocity. Rebecca, at the end of all this watering, she got rewarded with a rich husband. Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, but be careful for those who serve in the church, who volunteer for the church. I've seen similar attitudes, not ones of Rebecca, but ones of employees. Those who serve the church seemingly out of selflessness. But then add, or, or, or for the Lord, I want to serve the Lord, so I want to join the praise team. I want to serve the Lord, so I join the service team. But here's the thing. There's always this gravity pulling you away from that place of grace. And where some people, they start off wanting to serve the Lord. But eventually, when they don't get affirmation, they don't get recognition, they don't get a promotion, what happens? Bitterness, envy, jealousy. I thought I was supposed to be the next service team leader. How dare you, Pastor Christian? Put Stephanie Chow in front of me. Did I make you the service team leader? Oh, you're not. Okay. <laughs> Maybe somebody was saying that to me, and I was afraid of them. That's why I put them in front of me. Who did I put in? Who did I, who's service team leader? Kristen, right? Oh, Kristen. All right. Yeah, Kristen was saying that to me. She was yelling that at me. So I was scared of Kristen. And I'm just kidding. Kristen's a great sweetheart. Um, Anyway, if you do your work out of that Colossians 3 heart, you're going to do it onto the Lord, not onto men. So even if you don't get a reward, you don't get affirmation, you're still going to be all right. Why? Because at the end of the day, you didn't do it for them anyway. Now, the beauty is when you have this kind of attitude, God blesses you with a rich husband. <laughs> and like God gives, God gives you a reward. Like, you know, you don't... If you seek the reward, you know, I don't know. But, you know, if you just do it out of this heart to honor the Lord, God will reward you. And in this case, Rebecca, she got a rich husband. You know, um, it's popular these days, I noticed, uh, to say that when I have a family, I'm going to put family first. You know? And so you, you talk to uh, NFL players, NFL players, very popular for them to say, God first, family second, football third, in that order. That's how I live my life. <laughs> and a lot of pastors these days say similar things. I will never put ministry in front of my family. Family comes first above my, my ministry. You know, because the generation that's gone before us, they put uh, work uh, always in front of family. And so we're almost kind of comp- overcompensating for that. Uh, here's the thing. 
This value of putting family first over work is not in the Bible. Uh Uh-oh. Not in the Bible. So you're all proud of yourself and thinking, oh, I'm such a good Christian by saying God first, family second, football third. You know, God first, ministry, uh, family second, ministry third. You know, you think you're all proud of yourself, but, you know, that value is not in the Bible. The Bible teaches that what matters the most in life is love. Family relationships is one context where you can manifest that love. Your workplace is another context where you can manifest that love. So once again, it's not this family first, work second. It's love first. And love can manifest in either family and other times through the workplace. So if you ever choose work over family, you don't have to feel guilty. So long as you're not doing that all the time. You know? You know, I, you know, you know there are some pastors that teach this right now. And it makes me very uncomfortable, you know? You know, if, if you have a, your son's ball game to go to and you have, you know, some business trip coming up, you always should choose your son's ball game because they're going to remember for the rest of their life how you weren't at their ball games. You know, uh, that sounds nice and all, but in real life, you got to go on some of those business trips and you got to talk down and you got to sit down with your son and say, hey, I love watching your ball game. I know you haven't done anything in those games, but <laughs> I, st- I still love watching the game, son. I still love being there. But uh, the daddy, this time daddy has to go on this business trip. I, I didn't go on the last one, but this one I have to go on. And I just want to tell you, I still love you. And I know I'm not that game, but I'm going to be cheering you on. And I'm going to be praying for you, son. You know, you have, you, you, that's, that's the healthy way. Because love, in some cases, is going to manifest through your, through your work. You know, this is very uh, difficult for pastors. Because in pastors, you know, it's all about people. Our work is dealing with people. So, you know, if we don't be careful, we're always going to, you know, kind of shut down on certain days or certain hours of the day where we're like, no, no work. You can't do that, you know, because in ministry, it's all about people. And sometimes people, they need you, you know, at 8 p.m. when you're done with work. They might need you on Monday on your Sabbath day. And sometimes you got you to make the exception. You can't make it all the time. Like, oh, yeah, I'm such a good pastor. But you have to discern. Joe Pang is calling. He can wait. <laughs> oh, Gao is calling. Oh, I like Gao. I like Gao. Hey, Gao, it's my Sabbath, but I'm picking up because I like you. What's, what's going on? I'm going to pray for you right now. Hallelujah. Uh, God will hold us accountable for how we manage our families, but God will also, remember, hold us accountable for how we do our work. You know, if God asks you at the end of your life, I gave you all these talents. Why did you do mediocre work your entire life? And you answer back, Lord, it's because I wanted to be extra careful to put family before my work. Jesus is not going to get up and start giving you a slow clap. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus ain't going to do that. Jesus is going to be like, who told you it was either or? I wanted you to put love first. Not just in your family, but in your workplace. 
Not just in your workplace, but at the house of God, the church you're, you're a part of. Who told you it was either or? And there are parables that, you know, if I have enough time, I'll touch upon at the end, which prove that there's parables Jesus tells where at the end of our lives, God's going to demand an accounting for how we use the talents and time that he gave us on this earth. You know, there's no parable of the three fathers. <laughs> and uh, I gave you, I gave you five children. What have you produced? You know, one, one went to Harvard, another went to Yale. <laughs> A third one went to community college, but then he became a famous uh, CEO of a, a startup company. Lord, my five children have done really well. Well done, good and faithful father. You know, I mean, that's implied throughout the scriptures, but there's no parable like that. But there are parables of the servants, the three servants. Who at the end of their, when the master returned, expected an accounting for the talent and time they were given. You know, work is a form of love. It is a form, it is a way for us to release Christ's love onto the earth. And we are missing out on a huge part of God's purpose for our existence if we do not add value to the world around us through our work assignments. If we do not contribute to a better world. Now, here's the thing. You have to be careful here. When we think add value, contribute value to this world, make the world a better place, heal the world, make it a better place. Right? Before you get all Michael Jackson on me, all right, this kind of heart and approach has to be in tension with biblical eschatology, a biblical view of the end times. And so there's this famous uh, term that the reformers used to use, you know, the already but not yet. The kingdom of God has come already, but not yet. So it's not either or, it's both. And we, and we as Christians, while we're on this earth, we got to live in the tension of both. The kingdom of God has come already when Jesus came onto the earth, but it is not yet. Because there's a day coming when justice will be established. Righteousness will be established. He'll make all the wrongs right. But it hasn't happened yet. So we, uh, the reformers had a healthy view of this. See, the reformers taught that we ought to infiltrate government and be in all these different jobs in our society, and we should do well, and we should contribute value. But we should not become overly optimistic as if through our Christian work, we're going to establish this Christian culture and society. You know, they, they knew that it was still the not yet. So by us doing our work, we are showing people a fragment, a fraction, a picture of what it means for Christ to be reigning and ruling. We give them a picture of that by working in love, by working with diligence and doing it with all our heart. But the full picture is not going to come until Jesus returns. So some people will be like, well, if it's all, the world's going to all just burn up in hell and it's going to be judged by... Justice, you know, what's the use of us trying to redeem this world? Okay, and that person just totally doesn't get it. They don't get the fact that it's, the kingdom has come already. And it needs to start to manifest in greater and greater measure until Jesus comes to manifest it fully. So, you know, there are certain church movements that are overly optimistic. They want to establish a Christian culture in different parts and pockets of the world. Americans are very famous for having a tendency to believe this kind of overly optimistic 
uh, version of Christianity and eschatology. Uh, because it's because of our colonial history. If you know colonialism, you know, brave new world, you know, as you went out there, it looked like, wow, we can establish a society that's completely Judeo-Christian. And so they did that. They put it into the Constitution. And, yeah, we have a wonderful nation. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm an American citizen. I'm very proud of America, you know. Um, not in, like, annoying proud, but, like, you know, like, like I'm really, really genuinely proud to be an American and, and to have that part of my inheritance come from America. But, you know, the, the eschatology of the colonial period tended to be a little bit overly optimistic. Uh, there are three orientations toward work that John Ortberg describes in his book, The Me I Want to Be. In fact, he actually takes it from another book called Habits of the Heart by sociologist Robert Bella. Bella describes three orientations that people generally have toward work. Number one, work as a job. People who see work as a job, they focus on work as a means to a paycheck. Most people, when they're surveyed for why they do work, they will answer, it's to get money, pay the bills. Unfortunately, when you have this focus of work as just a job, it can result in resentment when you find the work that you actually do to have very little meaning other than just getting the paycheck. A lot of resentment and bitterness, people who view their work in this, in this way. The second orientation is work as a career. These people aim for something higher than money, status. Reputation. In this mindset, the way you feel toward work will very much depend on how much success it is creating for you. So, for example, if your career is stagnant, it may affect your sense of worth and dignity because you only see your work as a career to achieve fame and reputation and status. That's the second one. Work as a career. Third is work as a calling. Work as a calling. Many non-Christians today, they use this language of calling and vocation. But if you really think about it, the origins of calling are found only in a life of faith. Because Think about the implications. If you believe in a calling, that means there must be a caller. Who giving you that calling? You know, my grandma, she went off, she, she went off already, but, you know, she, she gave me that calling. No. In Christianity, we believe that that's someone who does the calling, who is the caller, that someone is God. And once again, this is why it is important that you do not think that you can just do whatever you want with your life. There's a sovereign God. He has a plan. He has a design. He doesn't want you to be all ambitious and dream big and come up with these grand plans and then say, God, bless my plans. No, God is the God who has prepared in advance the good works for you to do. He, he knows the plans that he has for you. Jeremiah 29, 11 says the Lord plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. God has a specific plan for your life. You know, in Campus Crusade, we used to always say when we evangelize, we would say God loves you. And has a wonderful plan for your life. You know? But that message, you know, it's most 
pertinent and important and significant to a Christian when they hear it. We need to hear that over and over again. That even when life looks like it ain't going nowhere, take heart. God's got a plan. Even if your family is falling apart and you have to quit your job to be with your family. Because I know people in here, you've had that situation. You know, you were, you were New York City. You were in Los Angeles. You had the law path set out for you. You were going to be the next America's Top Model or um, Project Runway champion, whatever. You know, like you were you are fashionista. You were ready to make it big. And then your family, somebody in your family got sick. Or your parents started going through a divorce. Or your little sibling couldn't take care of themselves, started getting in trouble with the law. And you had to quit your job, quit your studies, and go and be with your family. And during that season, you were thinking, God, where are you? And you might think, what does being with my family have to do with this path that I was on? And God says, it has everything to do with the path that you're on. You're not going to be like any other lawyer. You're not going to be like any other doctor. I'm shaping you to be my lawyer. You know, and, and you have to believe that God has a purpose and he has a plan. So you can't do whatever you want with your life. You've got to discover what God has planned out for you and then get with uh, what he has revealed. You know, um, my wife Erin, she was watching NBC's The Today Show the other day. And Matt Lauer, he was interviewing six Americans who had contracted the deadly disease Ebola and had recently been cured from it. Now, several of the survivors were doctors who had intentionally gone to West Africa to help those who were dying from this disease. At the end of the interview, when Matt Lauer asked them, in light of everything you suffered, would you do it again? Many of them answered without hesitation, yes, I would. In fact, at the end of the interview, a couple of doctors were hoping to get permission from their families to go back to West Africa, even though they nearly died trying to help these people. And what was really fascinating to me is that these doctors, they didn't identify the work they were doing as a means to a paycheck. I got to get that paycheck. Or I got to get that status. You know what they said? They said, this is our calling. Maybe you won't understand unless you do become a doctor or a nurse. This is our calling is to help people. When I, when I saw that, I was like, these doctors get it. This is the way all Christians should view their work. Even if you're not helping Ebola survivors, you're taking care of, you know, rowdy five-year-old kindergartners, you know? <laughs> and you're contracting all kinds of different diseases from them. <laughs> <laughs> if you will see, even if that's not your permanent assignment, if you will see that assignment as being God-given and you do it wholly unto the Lord, not unto men, and you see value in contributing love into their lives, then you're living out your work as a calling, not as just a job or as a career. John Orper points out that any work that has meaning, that can be a blessing to people on and onto the earth, can be a calling. It can be a computer programmer, a civil engineer who builds tunnels, an architect, a hotel manager, a trash collector, 
You know, trash collectors, think about it. We might look down on the social status of a trash collector. But without trash collectors, can you imagine how dirty the world will be? I mean, they add value to this world. Amen? Today, Lord, we just thank you for all the trash collectors that have answered your call. And can you imagine, though? Can you imagine, though? God's upstairs. Uh, God's up in heaven, and he's distributing callings. And it's, you see trash collector, and he says, all right, Susie M. There you go. Cassie Lee. Gone, gone. I know you're going to do a good job with this one. <laughs> and what would you say? You'd be like, God, I don't want that. Don't give me that. You know, but think about the trash collectors. They didn't get there by accident. Some of them, they were called to do that. And, and if they do it well, then our streets are clean. If they do just for the paycheck, then you're going to see chikoki, like uh, little pieces of trash everywhere. Like, you know, in Philadelphia, we need more trash collectors that have a calling. If you ever go to Philadelphia, man, it is dirty. I mean, you're like, when's the trash collector coming? They just did. You know, they just, I remember growing up, my back alley, they used to come through collecting the trash. Man, these trash collectors, they, be, they just be like, kicking over stuff, you know. I mean, they definitely were doing it just for the paycheck. But we got, we got to learn how to see every call of God as, as, a, as a calling. Every work assignment we're given as a calling. You know, the call to be a pastor is an esteemed calling in the church. But sadly, there are pastors out there who see their work as a means to get a steady income. And this will show when resentment comes up in their hearts because they don't feel their property compensated for the work that they do. If you want to be a pastor, here's a little word for you. You are never going to feel compensated for the work that you do. That's what being a pastor is all about. So if you see it as a calling, you'll be able to continue to give. If you see it as a job, good luck. You're not going to last very long. You know, a pastor can even see their work as just a job. But on the other hand, a hairdresser may see her work as a way to make people feel beautiful and fill them with confidence. And she sees her work as a call. A hotel chef may see his work as his way of offering tired guests a blessed and beautiful and uplifting dining experience that will change their lives. I mean, I mean chefs who do that, I mean, you see it in their work. You, know, you ever go to a restaurant? And you sit down, you order something that looks so beautiful in the picture. But then when you get your plate, you're like, is that what I ordered? Because <laughs> somebody in the back sees their work as just a job. But you can go some hole-in-the-wall place, right? And there's places like this all over America. You go to a little hole-in-the-wall place, and you don't, you're not expecting much. You just put down $4 for a meal. And out comes this beautiful, like, just even like the way the, um, uh, the, uh, you know, on pho, what's that stuff you put in the pho, honey? Cilantro. What do you, what's the other word for cilantro? Coriander, yeah. Cilantro, coriander, the way that's placed all over the pho. It's just like so beautiful. It looks like you're looking at a beautiful, like, lake or something like that. You know, and you're just like, you're just like, like almost tearing up as you're about to take your first bite. Like, that is like a chef who, in the back, he thinks of his work as a calling. You know, one person I really admire who has this third perspective of work as a calling is my mom. 
you know, as I was preparing this message and I was, just, I was reading some of these examples John Orper gave and I was trying to think of my own examples, I instantly thought, thought about my mom. Because for most of my life, I looked at what my mom does as something to look down on. Because she had a hard immigrant experience to America. She was actually a nurse in Korea. So she had the credentials, the skills to be a nurse. But in America, they, they were telling her she has to take the test all over in English. She tried, she tried to study for it, but it was just too difficult. And so she didn't get her nursing degree in America. And so she had to find any job she could find. And then when my dad left the house, when I became a senior, uh, ju- when I became a freshman in high school, my dad left the house. We couldn't depend on his income anymore. You know, he'll help, out, help us out here and there, but he didn't really, we couldn't really depend on his income. So my mom got a job. And the only job she qualified for was as a cashier at like a small supermarket in North Philly. And North Philly is ghetto. There's boarded up crack houses everywhere. I mean, her life was in danger every single day. And in the beginning, I remember, man, she would come home from work. I remember freshman year in high school. She will come home from work and she would cry every day without fail. Because her, her marriage had fell apart. And she was just barely paying the bills. And she just lost all sense of hope. I remember looking at it, and that's what drove me to keep getting my part-time jobs throughout high school. Because I didn't want to be a burden to my mom. But what, what ended up happening is later in high school, my mom, she saved up her money. And she bought what is called a drop store. You guys don't know what a drop store is. It's like a laundromat. It's like a dry cleaning uh, dry cleaner, but they don't do the dry cleaning at the drop store. They just collect the clothes, and then uh, a truck comes to pick up those dirty clothes, does it at a main center, and then drops it off later at night, and then she distributes the clothes to the neighborhood. That's called a drop store. So she barely got enough money to uh, buy a small drop store in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. Now, if you guys don't know where Germantown is in Philly, it is one of the most ghetto places, ghetto neighborhoods in all of Philly. How do I know? Because I used to go to wrestling school in Germantown, and I used to go to uh, get my jazz guitar lessons in Germantown. And whenever I went, I mean, I was nervous because it wasn't the safest neighborhood. My mom worked in the middle of Germantown at a drop store. She was underpaid, overworked, crazy customers would harass her. I mean, she had these stories that made me angry and, and uns- like people trying to rob her, everything, you know? Good, good thing she had like Two layers of glass, you know? <laughs> and then you have to, like, shut the door in order to, like, grab the money and stuff like that. I mean, you know, in Philly, that's how we do it, all right? Um, and although she was harassed, underpaid, I noticed that my mom, when she got that drop store, she took pride and dignity in the work that she did. I noticed she made sure that customers' clothes were delivered punctually and precisely. When I would visit from college... I would try to uh, communicate to my mom, I want to spend time with you. But she would be like, no, I need to get to my workplace on time. She did what she did with joy and with a smile. And she'd go way out of the way for her customers. I never understood that. Mom, why, why go through all that trouble? Just, get, just do, the, do the work, get the paycheck. But I believe my mom went from that cashier job in North Philly when she got the drop store in Germantown. I think God revealed to her that the work you're doing is not just a job. It's a calling. 
And I know you're disappointed about you not getting a nursing degree in America. But this is my calling and assignment for you now. I think that revelation must have been made all the difference because she did her work with dignity and joy. You know, eventually the drop store, she had to close it down. And most recently, she took on a job as a caretaker for aging Korean grandmothers that are living in private nursing homes. Most of whom, who, their families don't really visit anymore. Once again, when she goes and does her work, she does it with such joy. And she goes out of the way to be emotional support to these harmonies. You know, these harmonies, they've been abandoned by their families. They don't need just a physical caretaker. They need emotional healing and support. And my mom goes out of the way just to spend time with them. And I'll be visiting Philly. I'll be like, oh, my, where were you all afternoon? I thought you'd get off work at 2, coming home at 4 or 5 o'clock. She'd be like, you know, the harmony, she just, she just needed someone to talk to. Why is my mom able to do that? Because I, I see that she sees her work as a calling. You know, when I, when I, whenever I remembered her example as a, as a worker myself, when I worked different jobs in college and after college, her example was like a rebuke when I would think about her. Because the way I treated my work is just as a job. Just let me get through these hours. I didn't see it as a calling, and I didn't get out of it what I needed to get out of. You know, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 8, 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. I mean, every theology of this is that every job you're given is from the hand of the Lord. And it always comes with a purpose. So whatever setback you think you're in, I want to prophesy over you today that your next assignment, no matter what it looks like, is full of meaning and purpose. You don't have to derive value from that next assignment. You bring value to it. Uh, There's a quote that John Orberg includes in the book by Miroslav Volf. I don't even know who this guy is, but he says something really good here. He says, all human work, however complicated or simple, is made possible By the operation of the spirit of God in the working person. And all work whose nature and results reflect the values of the new creation. Is accomplished under the instruction and inspiration of the spirit of God. You see Jesus is going to return. And he's going to establish the new heavens and new earth. The new creation is going to manifest in its fullness. But until he returns, what is his people going to do? And every time we reflect the values of the new world, the new creation. All that kind of work that we do is accomplished only by the spirit of God. We have to put the spirit of God back into our work theology. Because it's through the spirit of God that the work that you do is going to excel. It's going to break through. You know, um, so I want to close with this. You know, our God, he's a God who gives us every job assignment that we ever get to steward. And so although your pipe 
dreams and your daydreams or thinking of that big lawyer job that you're seeking out or being a medical missionary or being a policymaker. I want you to remember that God is not experienced in the future. He can only be experienced in the here and now. So if you abandon the here and now and only are present in the future, you're going to miss out on this thing called the abundant life. And it takes a disciplined mind and a heart of faith to be able to embrace every job assignment as coming from the hand of the Lord. Students, all those who are in your undergrad studies or in your graduate studies or in a co-op program, when you do your studies, don't do it for your professors. Don't do it for a grade. That's the same thing as getting a paycheck. Study as unto the Lord. Diligently and with your whole heart. Not because man is watching, but because God is watching. And if I could rewind the hands of time and go back to college, I would do everything in my power to make sure I do all of the homework with the best of my ability. Now, I know I can't do all the homework, but I tried more than I definitely did at NYU. And I would, I, would, I would try to be fully present and honor the professors as best as I can because all of those things would have helped me to learn what I needed for my next assignment or would have qualified me for my next assignment. But once again, I have to confess, I didn't do that. I just did it just to pass. I did it just to get the credentials. And I believe that a lot of lessons I was supposed to learn at New York University, God had to reteach me after I graduated. And fortunately, God placed me at a law firm that was incredibly intense. And my boss, she, uh, she really trained me hard. And God bless her heart. She actually uh, went to be with the Lord a few years after I worked for her. But man, she taught me so many life lessons and so many uh, work work value, like work ethic. And then a little after that, I got to work at um, Apple Computers. You know, and I just felt like God was, God was like, look, you could have gotten all this when you were at NYU. But look, I'm gracious with you. Learn it now. If you don't learn it at Apple, I'm going to send you to Microsoft. <laughs> I said, no, Lord. Please, Lord, not that. You pray for us. Father, uh, I thank you that through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, each and every person in this room, they have incredible value and worth restored to them by that grace. And I thank you that they don't have to look for that worth in human relationships or in the work that they do or in their studies or in their grades. They already have that worth through the grace of Jesus Christ. And I just pray as those who are awakened by the implications of the gospel, by the truths of the gospel, that when we are given a job, when we're given work to do, maybe not even at a job, just raising a child, being with our families for six months as they go through a hard divorce. 
whatever season we're called that we're called to, I pray that they would do it with all their heart. They will not be given over to bitterness or resentment, but they will know that you are the sovereign God who doesn't waste a single thing. You turn all things for the good of those who love you, for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. Father, today I pray you would establish firmly every son and daughter in that truth. Break them free, uproot the deception, and establish them firmly in the truth that they don't have to derive value from work. They bring value to work. They add value to the world around them. No matter what assignment is given, however mundane, they will do it all with all their hearts unto you and for your glory. And as the sons and daughters manifest the glory of God, this world will be able to continually reflect the kingdom of Christ until he fully comes to complete that kingdom, that reign and that rule. We know that his rule and reign will know no end. And I pray that it will know no end in our lives. It will know no end in our cities. Wherever his people are placed, his reign and rule will increase until he returns.